this is Book Club Cheats, a podcast for book clubbers who just can't seem to find the time to read. I'm your host, Lippy Turner Roman, and today we'll be talking about Where the Crawdads Sing by Delia Owens. Would you be able to survive in a marsh or a swamp if you were abandoned? Yes? How about if you were six years old? How about if it was for the rest of your life? I'm pretty sure I would not. What would you do when the loneliness of being alone tore away at you, became a physical ache? Who would you turn to? Who would you be your playmates and friends be? What words would you say after months of silence? Those are the realities of Kaya, Catherine Daniel Clark, the heroine of Delia Omens's wonderful book, Where the Crawdads Sing. I actually had no idea what a crawdad was, and I had to look that up. A crawdad is an American slang word for crayfish. I didn't even know crayfish sang. Whatever. One of the characters in the book, Tate, tells Kaya, it just means far in the bush where critters are wild, still behaving like critters. Basically, it means in the wild, the unknown parts of nature Things happen that we have no clue about. Nature is definitely the other character in this book. Its ability to create and destroy, teach and heal. The book opens in 1969 with a couple of kids finding the body of the local golden boy, Chase Andrews, at the foot of an abandoned fire tower. The guy apparently fell through a door that was left open. No footsteps either Chase's or the assailants are found. Missing also is a shell necklace Chase always wore. The police find red fibres on the body from a red cap, we later find out. The story then moves to 1952. In fact, there's quite a bit of bouncing around with dates in the book. The story is not told in a linear narrative style and this can get confusing since the story weaves in and out of the years 1952, 53, 56, 60, 61, 65, 69 and 2009. It spans Kaya's life from 6 to 64. In 1952, six-year-old Kaya hears the door slam of the former slave shack, she says, with her family in the coastal marsh of North Carolina. She watches her mother walk down the sandy lane in her going-out shoes, carrying a blue train case. Usually her ma always turns and waves when she's headed to town, but not this time. This time ma is worn out from the beatings and carries on walking. Kaya waits for her return on the steps. The five children ma leaves behind try to fend for themselves against a drunken, violent pa. Pretty soon, the older three kids also leave. Thirteen-year-old Jody tells Kaya, Ma'll be back, since a Ma don't leave her kids, it ain't in em. But Ma doesn't come back. Before Jody also leaves, he teaches Kaya how to take their small boat out on the marsh and to protect herself from danger and strangers, basically hide in the marsh. So at six, Kaya has been abandoned by everyone she loves but Pa. Pa burns all of Ma's things. A malnourished Kaya takes the money Pa throws at her to upkeep the house and walks the miles into the town of Barclay Cove. She buys grits, 
Crisco and saltine crackers and that's what she ends up living on. The townspeople ostracise the marsh dwellers, calling them marsh rats. The police leave the marsh people alone to deal with justice as they see fit. I think it's a toss-up who they despise more, the African-Americans of coloured town or the marsh dwellers. Kaya is forced by the truant officer, Mrs Culpepper, to go to school. In class, she's humiliated by being unable to spell dog. No one gives a welcoming hand to her and on the bus home, the other children taunt her by calling her swamp rat and a marsh hen. That is the last day Kaya goes to school ever. Page 34. Months passed, winter easing gently into place as southern winters do. The sun, warm as a blanket, wrapped Kaya's shoulders, coaxing her deeper into the marsh. Sometimes she heard night sounds she didn't know or jumped from lightning too close. But whenever she stumbled, it was the land that caught her. Until at last, at some unclaimed moment, the heart pain seeped away like water into sand. Still there, but deep. Kaya laid her hand upon the breathing wet earth and the marsh became her mother. Mother Nature really becomes Kaya's friend plainly teacher and comfort and ultimately family. And Delia Owens sure knows how to write poetically and mesmerising about the natural world. Pa even has some good days. He teaches Kaya to fish and gives her his knapsack to keep her ever-growing collection of shells and feathers. He takes her to Jumpin's Gas and Bait. Jumpin is an old African-American and his wife Mabel go on to become Kaya's lifelines and lifelong friends. Waiting for Pa to pay for their lunch, Kaya meets a little girl. She was dressed in a pale blue frock and reached out her hand. Kaya stared at that little hand. It was puffy soft and maybe the cleanest thing Kaya had ever seen. Never scrubbed with lye soap and certainly no muscle mud beneath the nails. Then she looked into the little girl's eyes in which she saw herself was reflected as just another kid. Kaya shifted the napkin to her left hand and extended her right hand towards the girls. Hey there! Get away! Suddenly, Mrs. Teresa White, wife of the Methodist preacher, rushed from the door of the Buster Brown shoe shop. Marilyn, darling, don't go near that girl, you hear? She's dirty. Kaya watched the mother run her fingers through the curls didn't miss how long they held each other's eyes. A woman came out of the Piggly Wiggly and walked quickly over to them. You all right, Teresa? What happened here? Was that girl bothering Marilyn? I saw her in time. Thank you, Jenny. I wish these people wouldn't come into town. Look at her. Filthy. Plum nasty. There's that stomach flu going around and I just know for a fact it came in with them. A letter comes from Ma. Kaya leaves it on the table for her father to read. He burns it, storms out and proceeds to rebuild his life of violent drunkenness and gambling. Kaya lifts the ashes of the letter out of the stove and puts them into a jar to preserve something her mother touched. Pa eventually just stops coming home. Kaya assumes he's dead. So by the age of seven, Kaya has been abandoned by her whole family 
and lives alone in a shack in the marsh. With no money, Kaya has to live by her wits. She sells mussels and oysters to jump in, getting up in the middle of the night to beat the other sellers. But sometimes they're faster. It's at this point Jumpin and his wife Mabel literally jump in. They take care of Kaya as best as Kaya's pride will allow them. They buy smoked fish from Kaya, which they don't need, and collect donated hand-me-downs from the residents of Coloured Town for her. When Kaya starts her periods, she goes straight to Jumpin's and makes him bring Mabel, who comes running. The scene where a 200-pound Mabel jumps into Kaya's boat, listens to the baffled child and sweeps her into her arms to rock her back and forth and give comfort, just made me tear up. At 14, Kaya meets Tate, who is a friend of her brother Jody's. Tate is captivated by nature, science and by Kaya. He gives Kaya a heron's eyebrow feather for her collection. It's like he's giving her a diamond. It's that precious to her. Tate teaches Kaya to read, write and introduces her to poetry. In fact, Kaya becomes enamoured of a poet called Amanda Hamilton, who's a local, whose poems are liberally interspersed throughout the book. He brings her textbooks and scientific papers, which she devours. Kaya is enthralled by knowledge, the poems and by Tate. Someone to talk to, to hold her loneliness at bay, someone to be with, to belong to. They fall in love and even though Kaya wants to make love, Tate says she's too young. Tate has big dreams of university. He too goes away. Tate realises Kaya would die in an urban setting and would be lost without the marsh. So he abandons her to save her. She resolves never to get too close to anyone again. Only nature never leaves Kaya. Nature is always there for her. Kaya becomes enthralled by insects and their mating processes. Page 142. The lagoon smelled of life and death at once. An organic jumbling of promise and decay. Frogs croaked. Dully she watched fireflies scribbling across the night. She never collected lightning bugs in bottles. You learn a lot more about something when it's not in a jar. Jodie had taught her that the female firefly flickers the light under her tail to signal to the male that she's ready to mate. Each species of firefly has its own language of flashes. As Kaya watched, some females signalled dot, 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 dash, flying a zigzag dance, while others flashed dash, dash, dot in a different dance pattern. The males, of course, knew the signals of their species and flew only to those females. Then, as Jodie put it, they rubbed their bottoms together, like most things did, so they could produce young. Suddenly, Kaya sat up and paid attention. One of the females had changed her code. First, she flashed the proper sequence of dashes and dots, attracting a male of her species, and they mated. Then she flickered a different signal, and a male of a different species flew to her. Reading her message, the second male was convinced he had found a willing female of his own kind and hovered above her to mate. 
but suddenly the female firefly reached up and grabbed him with her mouth and ate him, chewing all six legs and both wings. Kaya watched others. The female got what they wanted. First a mate, then a meal, just by changing their signals. Kaya knew judgment had no place here. Evil was not in play, just life pulsing on, even at the expense of some of the players. Biology sees right and wrong as the same colour in different light. Kaya meets Chase Andrews, our dead guy from the beginning of the book. He is the school quarterback, the town darling, full of himself an all-round ladies' man. At a picnic on the sand, he tries to have sex with her, but then apologises when Kaya resists. Chase finds a shell which Kaya makes into a necklace and gives to him on top of the abandoned water tower. Chase strings Kaya along with promises of marriage and meeting his family. He tells her he's saving money to buy them a house, tells her she wouldn't like coming to Thanksgiving dinner at his place because they're all so lame, basically stringing her along for sex. The two finally have sex at a cheap motel. Kaya is so lonely, so wants a normal life that she overrides her own intuition and accepts all of Chase's lies. One day, shopping in town for ingredients to make Chase a birthday cake, Kaya bumps into his Chase's parents, who ignore her. She also bumps into Chase, who's with his gang of friends and his arms around a girl. That day, she reads in the local paper that Chase is engaged. Kaya ends the relationship and tells Chase to keep away. Chase won't accept this and tracks her down to a beach and attempts to violently rape her. He then starts stalking her and she knows she can never be safe from Chase. Tate finishes his PhD and comes to see Kaya. He's never forgotten her and wants to marry her. He doesn't say that to her though. He's too ashamed of how he treated her. He's blown away by her impressive collection of fauna and flora and the painting she's done of them using her Mars paints. Tate helps her to get a book contract and Kaya publishes a book on the seashells of the eastern seaboard. She subsequently publishes nine more books. The money helps her to renovate the shack, get indoor plumbing and register 310 acres of marshland, her home in her name. That's what I call self-sufficiency. When she gets her first book, she goes to see Jumpin'. Page 222. An hour after Tate left, Kaya motored to Jumpin's wharf, another copy of her book tucked in her knapsack. As she approached, she saw him leaning against the wall of his weathered shop. He stood and waved to her, but she did not wave back. Knowing something was different, he waited silently as she tied up. She stepped up to him, lifted his hand and put the book in his palm. At first he didn't understand, but she pointed to her name and said, I'm okay now, Jumpin'. Thank you and thank Mabel for all you did for me. He stared at her. In another time and place, an old black man and a young white woman might have hugged. But not there, not then. She covered his hand with hers, turned and motored away. It was the first time she had ever seen him speechless. She kept on buying gas and supplies from him, 
but never accepted a handout from them again. And each time she came to his wharf, she saw her book popped up in the tiny window for all to see, as her father would have shown it. Kaya's brother Jodu returns. Filled with remorse for abandoning her, he tells Kaya their mother is dead. Jodi fills in the backstory of their parents' marriage and its aftermath. After suffering years of violence, lies and misery, Ma can't take it anymore. And probably suffering and having a psychotic break, she just ups and leaves. After a year of wandering around her parents' home and just wandering into space, Ma snaps out of it and starts screaming that she left her children. The letter she wrote asked for her children's return. Pa wrote back, telling her that he would kill them if she tried to take them. The poor woman basically descended into a black madness after that, living a sad life just staring into space. And she had died just two years ago of leukaemia. Just so heartbreaking. The police arrest Kaya for Chase's murder. Two fishermen say they saw her boat going to the fire tower the night Chase died. Kaya has an alibi for that night. She is in Greenville to see her editor. She returned on the bus the next day. Lots of people saw her get off the bus. Even though Kaya has that alibi, she's tried for murder and faces the death penalty. The police alleged that Kaya returned to Barclay Cove on a bus disguised that night, killed Chase and went back to Greenville on a, the bus with a different disguise and she returned the next morning so people could see her get off the bus. Ooh, that's a lot of work to kill the guy. Kaya's lawyer makes quick work of raising serious doubts about the police's theory. Kaya is found not guilty by the same people that had ostracized and persecuted her for 22 years. An emotionally spent Kaya returns home to the marsh and never sets foot off it again. She has a rich, full life, living with Tate, collecting and writing, conducting research and receiving award after award. At 64, Kaya dies peacefully on a boat while collecting specimens, her trusty knapsack beside her. Tate buries Kaya in the marsh, a ceremony which the whole town attends. Looking for a will, Tate finds a trap door near the wood stove, kneeling down. Okay, spoiler alert. Page 366. He slowly opened it to find an enclosed compartment between the joist, which held, among other things, an old cardboard box covered in dust. He pulled it out and found inside scores of manila envelopes and a smaller box. All the envelopes were marked with the initials A.H., and from them he pulled pages and pages of poetry by Amanda Hamilton, the local poet who published simple verses in regional magazines. Tate thought Hamilton's poems rather weak, but Kaya had always saved the published clippings, and here were envelopes full of them. Some of the written pages were completed poems, but most of them were unfinished, with lines crossed out and some words rewritten in the margin in the poet's handwriting. Kaya's handwriting. Amanda Hamilton was Kaya. Kaya was the poet. Tate's face grimaced in disbelief. 
Through the years, she must have put the poems in rusty mailboxes, submitting them to local publications, safe behind a nom de plume, perhaps a reaching out, a way to express her feelings to someone other than girls. Somewhere for her words to go. Glanced through some of the poems, most about nature or love, one was folded neatly in its own envelope. He pulled it out and read, The Firefly. Luring him was as easy as flashing valentines, but like a lady firefly, they hid a secret call to die. A final touch, unfinished. The last step, a trap, down, down he falls his eyes still holding mine until they see another world. I saw them change, first a question, then an answer, finally an end, and love itself passing to whatever it was before it began. A.H. Still kneeling on the floor, he read it again. He held the paper to his heart, throbbing inside his chest. He looked out of the window, making certain no one was coming down the lane. Not that they would. Why would they? But to be sure. Then he opened the small box, knowing what he would find. There, laid out carefully on cotton, was the shell necklace Chase had worn until the night he died. Tate sat at the kitchen table for a long while, taking it in, imagining her riding on night buses catching a riptide, planning around the moon, softly calling to Chase in the darkness, pushing him backwards, and then squatting in the mud at the bottom, lifting his head heavy with death to retrieve the necklace, covering her footsteps, leaving no trace. Tate burns the letters and rawhide and throws the shell back on the beach with hundreds of other shells. Tate and the land that Kaya loved keep Kaya's secrets. I liked Where the Crawdads Sing. I'm going to be honest with you. I started reading it and um, when I got to chapter four, it was just slow going for me. So I put the book down and a couple of weeks later, I picked it up and I finished that book in one sitting then. So I liked the book. And for whatever reason, it just didn't grab my attention right off the bat. The book is wonderful in beautifully portraying the natural world, the marsh, the swamp, the creatures. Um, as I noted before, Owens is just a master at portraying that world and showing that beauty in it. What I had some trouble with was I found the mystery and the murder aspect of it a little bit weak. Once I read the passage about the fireflies, I knew that Kaya had done it and that she was the murderer. I didn't have any problems with her being the murderer, but that element just seemed a little bit off to me. I like Delia Owens with a crawdad sing a lot. But I'm going to be honest with you, I didn't finish it in one sitting. I started it and around halfway mark, it my interest started flagging. 
Maybe I was having a bad night or I was tired or work was on my mind. Anyway, I didn't pick up the book until a couple of weeks later. And then I did whip through it in a very short time, that night in fact. So on the whole, a good read. Lots of people I know have raved about the book, some comparing it to Kill a Mockingbird. Well, I didn't see the same parallels and it didn't call to me in the same way. I did think it was a good book, but I probably wouldn't reread Where the Crawdads Sing. Delia Owens really shines in her descriptions of the marshes and the life around the marshes. And it's not really surprising for the wildlife scientist who's won a mass of awards for her nature writing. However, her weakness in the book, and the weakness for me, was that murder plot line. I'm not a huge crime reader, although Agatha Christie does reign supreme in our household, especially Perot. But... As soon as I read the passage about the cross-coding female firefly, I knew Kaya had murdered Chase and that someone somewhat dimmed the book for me. You should definitely read Where the Crawdads Sing for the beautiful, lyrical and unflinching beauty of the marshes. Here are some book club questions. What does the knapsack symbolise for Kaya and why? And why didn't Kaya just go to the police when Chase tried to rape her and she felt unsafe? Was Kaya morally justified in killing Chase? Does a Christian or Abrahamic concepts of morality mean anything in the universe of this book, in the marshes, or to Kaya? And should it? Jodie tells Kaya sick and wounded animals in nature abandon their young for self-preservation. Is, is it ever forgivable for mothers in our society to leave their children for self-preservation? And how does our society view women that do that, who leave their children? Is the prejudice that Kaya receives the same as the prejudice that Jumpin and Mabel receive from the town folk? How did the world Kaya live in impact Kaya's viewpoint of relationships? And is it a healthy view? Both Kaya and her mother were duped by charming, lying, violent men. They each dealt with the situation differently. Which one would you choose if you were in similar situations and why? Enjoy the book and enjoy the book club questions and discussions. Bye-bye.